This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast. Episode 230, brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Umas Suleiman to talk about not just Islamic finance and fintech, but what the wider world of ethical investment can learn from a tradition of finance and investment that's been carrying on for well over a thousand years. Uma is Global Head of Risk and Sharia at Wahed, which is an ethical and values-driven digital investment platform based in New York. He is also a board member of the Islamic Finance Council of the UK. So, one way or another, he knows a thing or two about all of these topics. I feel that Islamic finance's importance goes way beyond describing a type of finance that is used by a subset of followers of a certain religion, important as that may be to them. It goes much further insofar as it has implications for all sorts of ethical investment, having had to, and to this day keep doing, solving practical challenges between theory and practice. The latest World Bank report I found, which was 2015, quite some time ago, but never mind, estimated that global Sharia-compliant finance assets are around $2 trillion. No small sum of money. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Uma. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we were going to be uh, meeting up in the city of London, but it's one of the train strike days, so we're both a little bit further away from the centre than we might be, perhaps, and as we're doing this over the internet I'm sitting here rather anxiously because the last recording I did with my nine-year-old voice recorder, which is a physical device, I did a, what I've done for the last nine years and copied the file to my desktop, 46 megabytes, that looked about right. And then when I played it, it was entirely silent. Somehow the file had corrupted itself, so very fortunately, wow. I had actually sort of got a full back on my, uh, on my phone and uh, sharp-eared listeners will hear that the last one. My dulcet tones are slightly less dulcet. <laughs> now, in terms of a different topic, and very appropriate, we've discussed most things as a sort of chit-chat to get going. I was suggesting that we talk about a gentleman who is uh, perhaps in my top five of all-time amazing human beings, a gentleman called Imam al-Ghazali, who was a 11th century, oh, he was everything, he was a theologian, he was a, a legal expert, he was a religious expert, you know, he, he absolutely um, knew everything in the way that people did a, a thousand years ago, or actually in the way that next to nobody did, but a very few people um, did. And in particular, I may or may not have even mentioned before on the podcast, a brilliant film called The Alchemist of Happiness, which I don't like to say appears on YouTube, because actually I bought the DVD and I don't like ripping off filmmakers, but... Yes, I was extremely impressed by the film and by Al Ghazali. I've got one or two of his books. And he was quite the thing a thousand years ago, almost a thousand years ago, and still is to this day, as I understand, in the uh, Islamic tradition. Absolutely. Hugely influential. Hugely influential. You could perhaps consider him a polymath uh, because of the different areas that he covered. In a way, I guess today we have such specialisms and you kind of lose the broader appeal. And he's one of those scholars that not only in a practical sense from what we call fickle jurisprudence, as you mentioned, and so he speaks about different things to do with everyday life, and of, of which economics and finance is one, but also matters of the heart, so to speak, and of philosophy. And so depending on when you caught him and which 
era of uh, his writings you read, you'd see that he was also on a journey himself. So it's fascinating referring to him or reading his his works. Yes, exactly. And um, I was just moaning to you beforehand about various family health challenges right now. And in terms of the specialism of the modern world, where everybody knows more and more about less and less. You really yes. notice this in the UK with its collapsed health service. In, in the, if you quotes aren't well, they'll send you to a specialist who knows a hell of a lot about a tiny little bit. And then after sort of several months of tests and waiting for results, say, oh, actually, no, don't know. Go and see another specialist. And you can literally be pinging your way around um, all these specialisms. And just to the main topic of the unity of an ethical system with an economic system, which, as you say, is one of Al-Ghazali and also, I think, a strength of Islam, that they don't divide these things up into to different sectors, as it were. Of course, the, the West was behind at the time in terms of universities, but... We had scholasticism before we had universities where, and I think actually Western universities are turning back to scholasticism in a very perverted or perhaps satanic, some people might say, way, in that up to whatever century it was, yes. um, universities such as the one I went to, the right answer was to be found by reference to the Bible. Yes. And yeah. you get something still in English in terms of scholasticism being discussing how many angels can fit on the head of the pin. And I remember being told that when I was young, like, what silly things they spoke about in universities, you know, <laughs> before modern science and the Renaissance came along and we did all this reason stuff and made iPhones and, and all the other wonderful stuff like that. But um, it was only decades later that I realised that actually that's a very interesting question itself, which is what's the relationship between the material and the immaterial realm? So actually, it isn't as stupid as it sounds. And in a similar way, actually, I think the snake oil salesmen were much decried because apparently snake oil has got plenty of... Uh, beneficial yeah. uh, health yeah. benefits but yes i definitely recommend al-ghazali i think he's known as the um, proof of islam or certainly was um, yeah. You know, yeah in the 11th century he was a phenomenally brilliant brilliant guy at the age of 33 he was made head of what was then basically the largest university in the world possibly expert on everything but then he had a huge crisis of faith where he knew it all let me just simplify between his ears really well yes. as an enemy yeah. else and brilliant debater but then somehow he sort of heart cut through and said, mm, are we sure about this? And he disappeared for a decade and Absolutely. lots of CP practices and all sorts of things and then came back a, a changed man. So it's a phenomenal story. And I guess it's uh, the difference between academic knowledge purely for the sake of academia and I guess uh, some level of spiritual knowledge where it should make you more humble as opposed to more arrogant. And you find people who seek knowledge for the sake of knowing or knowledge, it often coincides with them becoming more arrogant because they think they become experts so yeah that's uh, definitely you'll find this with uh, i guess all forms of scholarship the more you know you realize the less you actually know in a complete sense uh, and so it should force you to be humble imam ghazali interestingly also um he was said to have heavily influenced adam smith who spoke about economics and i guess the the godfather of modern economic theory from, from one uh, aspect yes absolutely so that's always nice to talk about him, but I realise that I've done you something of a disservice there, old boy, and that um, I'll now say, OK, so having discussed Al-Ghazali's career journey, <laughs> how has yours been yeah, so, so far? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do I follow up? Changing topic completely. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I've been a kind of a career professional for, for around 20 years. I started my career actually in the public sector, on a graduate scheme so I, I learned firsthand what it's like to administer public funds working for a local authority 
I left there to work for Ernst & Young, one of the, the, the big four professional services firm working in auditing. Again, with a special focus, I was part of a specialist group that worked on PFI contracts, which is quite interesting, the private finance initiative. So what used to be PPP, and that came under a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of umbrage. Um, so I was working there, and then after I worked for uh, Global Bank HSBC, I was uh, in various head of risk roles uh, for a number of years. Alongside my kind of um, career, my, my, my I guess my career during the day, uh, I was always interested in Islamic finance from an ethical perspective uh, as a mechanism for being able to implement some form of social justice, which is why I, I worked in the public sector in the first place to kind of see how, how we administer finance. But I never worked in Islamic finance prior to Wahid. So yep, Worked at HSBC, then I was doing consulting in risk, and then uh, finally I joined Wahid, which is uh, the world's largest quote-unquote Islamic fintech, which uh, just enables an uh, everyday person to invest in a manner that aligns to their faith or values. Ah, oh, excellent. If only I'd been diligent enough in my research just to have that in my introduction, the world's largest Islamic <laughs> fintech. My introduction might have sounded even more slick than it, no, um, no. <laughs> than it did. Excellent. Okay, well, let's dive into the topic. And it occurs to me that um, this is going to sound very silly, but let's be just sort of thorough about the, the basis here, that, that maybe we should, for the benefit of the listeners who may not be as familiar as you are, define what Islam is in this context. I mean, I heard a great story ages ago. Theresa May was always standing up and saying, Islam is this or Islam is that. And I, and I spoke to somebody who actually sat next to her at a dinner at Oxford University, and they were, I think, a scholar of Islam. <laughs> they said she, she knew absolutely nothing. I mean, like, just nothing. You know? <laughs> and I think that for irreligious people whose souls <laughs> are forever lost, like myself, people may not understand that Islam is, yes, it's one of the abrahaminical religions. You've got Judaism, you've got Christianity, the Church of the Wake these days, and then you've got uh, Islam. But actually there are all some significant differences in that it's not just, let's just compare it with Christianity, people go to church on Sunday, <laughs> some sort yeah. of Christians yeah. do, and that's religion, and then they're at the bank in the week, and all that's finance and that's economics, it's a different thing. It's much more of a, of a world system. So maybe we just give a little overview of the fact that, okay, we know there's a, the Quran and there's the Hadith, and what are the sort of you know, what are the must-haves on your bookshelf okay. if you want to be serious, a serious Muslim and have as it were, the reference works there? Having defined Islam, we can then narrow down to, to sure. the finance. But I think this is a, an important part, and I don't think it really applies anywhere else. I mean, Taoists, for example, just do their Taoism. Buddhists do their Buddhism. You know, Buddhists don't, for example, conduct marriage ceremonies. You know, it's nothing to do with, with, with Buddhism, really. Uh, the monastics, for a, for a start, which the... Prophet, peace be upon him, forbade in, in Islam, which was interesting. So yes, just briefly, yes, just take us one level below the, yes, Islam is a religion and there are lots of people are Muslims in the world. Okay, so you see, um, there's lots of different ways to describe, I guess, anything in Islam. So we'll start at the top. So Islam is Unitarian. It believes in God in his uniqueness, omnipotent, supreme and sublime. We have the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who we believe is the last of a number of messengers. So all of the earlier prophets, as mentioned in the Bible, the Torah, etc. The Prophet, peace be upon him, came as a conclusion to essentially bring the final, final message. 
at the heart of what Islam is, is to believe, identify and worship one God and then to live your life in accordance with those things which ultimately will please God and get you into a better hereafter. Okay, so how do we know what pleases God ultimately? Other than the, the main forms of worship, which is most people know it's probably praying five times a day, going on the Hajj, the greater pilgrimage, if you're able to in your life, annually paying uh, what's called zakat, which is 2.5% of your savings, effectively any accumulated wealth that you have that's not working in society, being productive. So your unproductive wealth, you give charity on fasting in the month of Ramadan. So how do we identify what God wants from us? And this was through the messenger, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And we had the messenger and the message and the book that he brought, which is the unchanged word of God. So as he would have found it 1450 odd years ago, is to this day, it's recited in exactly the same way, which forms, I guess, the main revelation, which doesn't have all of the rules. So we have what God wants to tell us through the Quran, which is a part of the religion. And then this was complemented and explained to us through what's called the sunnah which is the sayings of the prophet peace be upon him the actions of the prophet peace be upon him or the implicit allowance of something happened in front of him and he allowed it now the scholars will look at what does the quran say as primary revelation then they will look at the actions and the sayings of the prophet peace be upon him and then they will make a decision on this they will then derive rulings from this into how we should live our how we should live our lives, why God wants us to do something specifically, and this is something that's quite important where we talk about um, say Islam as opposed to perhaps other faiths. Islam can be split into two areas. One's called worship, and for something to be considered worship, it's very specific. I can't stand on my head and say I'm worshiping God, I'm worshiping Allah. It's very specific that we pray in a specific way, we give charity in a specific way, we do the pilgrimage in a specific way. Everything else is called mu'amalat, which are our social contracts, our contracts with each other, under which finance falls. And the rule here is everything is allowed other than those things which are prohibited, right? And for example, we can eat what we want, but we can't eat pork. Most people will know that. Or we can't eat meat, which isn't slaughtered in a specific way. We can drink whatever we want. Islam doesn't say you have to drink grape juice over apple juice, as long as it's not alcohol. And finance falls under that. Ultimately, the entirety of this religion and this world is seen as a test and we're given through the various um, revelation, directly and indirectly, methods for achieving that success. But at the heart of it really is that focusing on knowing your relationship with God and doing things which ultimately would please Him. And I guess this is a really important point for people to understand. You can get sidetracked in discussions around faith. So you can say... I don't understand why women have to wear hijab, for example, or why do you have to pray five times a day and so on. And you can get focused on these, these, I guess, minute areas. Actually, the center of it is that you have this relationship with God. You recognize him as your creator. You're completely in awe of him, you know, and so you will do what he wants from you. It's just understanding what he wants from you in any given time or space. Worship is one aspect, but actually the way we are with each other, the way we deal with each other, all of this forms part of that journey to him. And so anything which is prohibited, we stay away from. And we can cover what that is when it comes to finance. Excellent. Well, that's very clear. So 
moving it on to the the finance angle i guess that the more straightforward part of islamic finance would be anything that's directly referred to in the quran i just looked up the sort of history of christianity and usury and uh, yeah. the old testament references and all this kind of stuff and Jesus, who isn't much mentioned by the Church of England these days. I was at the Kent show, actually, and the Church of England had a booth. And it was about, you know, net zero, mass immigration. It didn't even mention Jesus. Literally did not mention Jesus. I mean, even yeah. I, as, you know, <laughs> I had to be a Christian until the age of five, and I sort of escaped out the window. But even I was sort of shocked by that one. But anyway, Jesus is well known for overturning the, the tables of the money lenders. You know, there's, there's often this sort of idea that he was a peace and love kind of guy. Well, he, you know, he did emphasize the love and fair enough, that's a very good idea in, in life. But also he did actually go and sort of disrupt the bankers, as it were. Completely. So uh, all that kind of stuff has been forgotten. But anyway, so when it comes to the, the finance, and, and I'm thinking particular back in the day, I've mentioned uh, when I was running fixed interest fund management, I sat next to a chap that covered the Middle East and uh, Islamic finance, one of the bankers, was always coming over to see him because they were talking about mutual clients and all, all this kind of stuff and the latest Marabahar transactions and, and all this kind of thing. And uh, then we had an Islamic investment fund, oh, I think 80s, 90s or something at uh, uh, Kleinwatz. But what I'm trying to get to inarticulately, as always, is that we have this high up principle, which, as you say, which is keeping the uh, infinite source happy with us and or trying to sort of serve him or orientating ourselves in that direction. And you've got the Quran at the centre and then you've got the sort of scholarship around the imputing that it doesn't really matter which part of the world you're in. Yes. Intellectual scholars, yeah. <laughs> priests, imams, your mileage may vary. And so what was happening time and time again with an Islamic investment fund paying much attention, he was just sitting next to me, he was doing it. So he said, oh, this, 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 and this. Something would crop up that had never cropped up before that was in nothing of a, you know, a th whatever it is, dozen, or 1,200 years of tradition. Oh, what about this then? So it reminds me a little bit, also in terms of you saying that everything is allowed unless it's forbidden, which is also the English legal system, as you know, which is yeah. uh, under common law. Do what you want, unless the king says, don't do this, this, and this. Oh, okay. But then what happens is that, and it seems similar to me, that in English common law, which is virtually dying out with sort of state centralism, you go to some court and you say, hey, judge, I don't think this is fair. I, I've been nicked for parking on a yellow line. Where, where, where does it ever say I can't do that kind of stuff? Anyway, and then a local judge will apply precedent, will apply his understanding of the principles and say, oh, yes, that's OK, Mike. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know. Or actually, and this is really interesting as well, which is that, look, technically you've breached something there, but actually you, you meant to do the right thing, you know, and it wouldn't have been fair on that day or all that kind of stuff. So as I recall, going back to the, uh, not so much the um, uh, Islamic banking bit, but the Islamic investment my buddy would call a, a, an imam, I think, in Regent's Park somewhere and say, yes, yeah. hey, this, this and this. And, you know, we've got a sort of uh, interest rate derivative swap. or no interest rate, but anyway, some mumble mumble, yeah, some yeah. complex derivative. Da -de -da -de -da -de. Is that OK? <laughs> so you've always got this thing, as, as you explained, starting from the top down, because I asked you. But when, when you get to the bottom, there's new things happening every, every day. So maybe just, just like, what, having started with a massive theory, maybe you explain how that works for the world's largest Islamic fintech, as I can call you, on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it's not quite like the 1980s, because in the 1980s, the whole sort of derivatives and crazy things were just sort of really taking off, and then computers have only made it more complex and more and more complex structures and all that kind of stuff. So we may have passed the top of new things being created and therefore, as it were, judicial rulings on, on what is and isn't allowed. But how does it work for you? Because you're not going to find the average transaction in the Quran, I'd assume. 
No, absolutely. So we look at the principles. One of the, the, the key, I guess, uh, prohibited activities uh, in the Quran, and as you mentioned in the earlier Abrahamic faiths, is the prohibition of interest. And I know some people try and distinguish between interest and usury today, but interest in in any shape, size or form. So any transaction which involves interest needs to be uh, screened out. Secondly, there shouldn't be any gambling involved. Okay, and then I'll show how these are applied. This is a direct chronic prohibition, so in gambling. And then something which is called gharar, which is unnatural risk, or the type of risk which can't be quantified or measured that would leave potentially one party really disadvantaged compared to the other. So these are three rules that came. Then we got to look at how we apply them. Then there's secondary rules, which is that something which has been made forbidden for us in terms of consumption or doing, that's right, in terms of acts, then we can't profit from it either. You can't invest in breweries, for example, keep it simple. Breweries, uh, pornography. Guns. Exactly, exactly. So you can't benefit in, in that either. And then the other underlying principle, there has to be a real exchange of value. Right. There has to be a real exchange of value. Now, this is really important to understand that actually that when you're doing a transaction, there has to be some underlying economic activity that directly supports that transaction. Now, why this is a key point is then this options, derivatives, there's direct statements from the profit piece be upon him, which, for example, speak to you can't double defer. So futures is out of the window from that options that there's an underlying asset or economic activity that connects then options, which isn't linked to a direct asset or service, then gets filtered out. So what you're left with is actually you need to invest in either an asset or a commodity or a company that deals in something which is okay. So if we say take Apple or Microsoft, which essentially is providing a service, you're able to invest in them. Then you look at actually, what do they actually do? Do they have any type of prohibited activity? Okay, Microsoft hasn't set up like a gambling subsite or anything like that. You can still invest in them. And then they can't have excessive debt. So buying and selling of debt is prohibited Islamically. And so if they have excessive debt, you stop dealing in a company that's an asset and actually it's a debt. So what we do is we look at a universe of investments. We make sure that they're listed, obviously from a regulatory perspective and from a customer protection perspective, make sure their underlying activities good. They're not heavily leveraged. In fact, they've got minimum debt and then they don't make any income from impermissible activities above 5%. Now, this 5% is a threshold that's been set because it's the nature of the world's economy now that there's always going to be something that sneaks in. So as long as it's not above 5%, you can invest in it. And then if, it, for example, if it was 5%, then you give that percentage away in charity. You don't profit from it. And so it's as simple as that. Interesting. Well, I think even in a, in a system which is relatively strict in a number of ways, there is this practical constraint. And I think, you know, when it's come, if, if people are talk, thinking about their own ethical investment approaches, if you're completely purist, then you might end up like the more pure sect of the Amish, who have many sects in, the, in Northeast America, many of whom will not touch almost any technology whatsoever, whereas other sects of Amish will actually have little lights on their, um, on their buggies and, and, and things like that. Yeah. So just before we move on to fintech, and one thing hearing you say this already is it, it sounds to me that this is kind of almost anti-tech in that it's human, which is that you know, a computer can't make all these uh, decisions. You, know, you need human beings involved because a computer can't interpret 
1200 years of tradition or however many it is by now. But just before we move on, I think the one thing that'd be sort of interesting for me and the listeners is to understand what percentage of finance, shall we say, in Middle East, North Africa, in the, in the MENA, MENA region, is Sharia compliant or Islamic finance or traditional or, or whatever phrase you want to do. And I'm very much mindful that in the early days of fintech in my involvement in London, over a decade ago, a buddy of mine happened to be setting up a, an Islamic insurance syndicate on Lloyd's. And I said, oh, isn't there lots of that already? He said, well, there's some, but not very much. And, and they said, for example, I th- certainly a while ago, quite some time ago, Jeddah Airport, and I think Saudi is pretty strict <laughs> in its um, brand of Islam, so Jeddah Airport has to be in- insured on a sort of, you know, on a non-Islamic finance thing, because simply there isn't the capacity there. Yes. So I don't want listeners to go away before we dive into the fintech aspects. I don't want them to go away with, with the idea that the whole Islamic world and whatever there are, I didn't know, a billion, billion and a half Muslims these days, I don't want them to go away with the idea that actually the whole world in Islam actually does that. It's only a, a subset of people that, in a subset of countries, and even within the more strict countries, uh, I'm sure the same applies in Iran. You know, there are various things that can't be done. So just as a feel or as a number... What do you think percentage of our investments or, or banking in the Islamic world are 100% Sharia compliant or 95%? Uh, it's very difficult to actually give it a number like that, Mike, to be honest with you. I would say globally, Islamic finance is a dot on the entire financial landscape, right? And why? If we look at country by country by regions, Malaysia is 50%. Iran, their official figures, which can't be verified, they say is 100%. Saudi Arabia, you don't have official figures for because if you say something's Islamic, then it means de facto whatever's remaining is non-Islamic. So um, you can't say that. The rest of the Middle East, uh, the numbers are increasing. Just contextually, Islamic finances and industries may be 30, 35 years old properly. So it's got a lot of catching up to do. In that time, we've also had the emergence of fintech, which is further disrupting. And so the true figure it'll be very hard to actually place. So, yes, you mentioned this fintech word, and I just remember them on the uh, fintech podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you could give us a little bit of an overview of Sharia-compliant, traditional is- Islamic finance. I mean, it's a crazy thing to do, but just give us a little bit of an overview of, of where the ma- major areas are and the developments and the challenges that uh, are-, are faced compared to conventional finance, so let's say HSBC you mentioned, uh, where a computer can do it because there's, quotes, no ethics in it at all. It's just numbers, it's just bits. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really good to preface that you look at the rules, right, the rules of, of Islamic finance. Actually, you take a step back, there's a whole moral approach to actually how that finance works. And if the rules don't flow up into meeting that higher objective, then they fail. And I'll explain what I mean. Islamic finance, and it kind of started out 35 years ago, was looking to replicate existing products, but make them Sharia compliant. So you could argue that its basis for starting was flawed. But there was a number of reasons for this. You had challenges around homeownership or investing, etc., getting access to opportunity, financial opportunities. And what was known, what was prevalent in the market, was the basis for which you would understand, is this compatible or not laid on top of that is the regulatory framework under which these structures are going to operate okay this is important to understand we live in a society where debt is favored by the regulators you're almost rewarded for debt this is the reality of it 
And you also live in a society, for Muslims in the UK, for example, where the, the central bank prints infinite amounts of money, the government prints infinite amounts of money, we have open borders, and house prices are going through the roof. So I assume, going back to Al-Hazali's time, a thousand years ago, house prices weren't crazy, and you didn't need huge sums of money. Somebody working in Absolutely. a factory or something didn't need huge sums of money to have his own place. But here, even if you're trying to be Sharia compliant, it's been screwed because the whole economy is based on limitless printing of money and interest rates. Absolutely no real underlying economic activity. If you look at house prices, for example, when it's benchmarked against gold, it's actually been very stable over the last hundred years. And money as a measure for its value actually is probably the wrong measure. Quite. I mean, I saw something today, Mario Ineco, who's been on the, on the show talking about the dollar. He was talking about the fact that in India, they're going to ban now or demonetize the 2000 rupee note or something like that, which yeah. is basically 20 quid in our terms. And that even since 2000 or 2001, the rupee has lost, I think, 92% of its value compared to gold. Absolutely. And it's always going to. Even conventional, I mean, other currencies are always going to devalue against the gold. It looks like gold's going up. It's not actually. It's money's losing its value. So look, so Islamic finance products started like this. So they started in kind of project financing, large-scale project financing and home purchasing, etc. Then you saw the emergence of Takaful, which is this insurance, almost like a mutual structure. But all of these products, by and large, were replicating conventional products. Yes, I did see quite a few Murabaha contracts whose sort of return ended up being something like libel. <laughs> Coincidentally, no doubt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And this is the vast majority of these because people wanted to replicate debt right and so this is what i mean that the structures in and of themselves they may have passed the form of islamic structuring but they didn't meet the spirit of what the sharia was requiring which is not to increase financial inequality so all of these products have been going on for a while i guess people are kind of wising up a little bit more to them they're paying the privilege of having something which is Sharia stamped, but in essence, it works exactly like a conventional product. It solves their conscience. I only buy Sharia-compliant yeah. investment funds. Absolutely. How holy and how wonderful am I? <laughs> you know, That's right. I, I, footnote, I actually don't inquire too much into detail because I doubt they're sort of as compliant as they say on the, on the label kind of thing. Human nature being what it is. Absolutely. And then you see, as this is happening, a few global things uh, have occurred at the same time. We're more connected now. So... Globally, information is being shared in a, in a rate that wasn't being shared before. I guess the Muslim world has the youngest demographic in terms of age when it comes to where they are. So the youngest demographic, which is growing. So at 1.5 billion at the moment, roughly, this population is growing. They're now more economically active. They have access to information. And so they're like, why should we compromise on our faith and our values? So... Alongside, on top of this new sharing of information, is the emergence of disruptive finance, so fintechs. So fintechs which have come in, even in the conventional space, they were like, wait a second, we need to break this uh, hegemony of banks, right? So they're there, they're just, you know, out to make money, they were privatising their profits, socialising their losses, something's very wrong here. We need to fix this and we can do things much better and quicker. So... Fintech technology has allowed transactions to happen in a way that wasn't done before. It's also allowed, from an Islamic-based principle, certain requirements to be met through technology with a laser-sharp focus actually on providing products that technology can enable. 
So for example, investments, whereas before, if you wanted to invest for a, say for example, a large warehouse, the only way of doing it really was through financing, which was debt. Now through technology, you can crowdfund. You can give people fractional investing you know, in a way with real ownership, which is a key quality of, of something being sure you're compliant. You can see the transaction, it's transparent, it's end-to-end. -end. So technologies enable that. So that at the same time we're seeing is contending with conventional finance and Islamic finance, and, and people are moving away from actually, we don't want to leave our money in banks. I, I see it with my, my uh, younger siblings. Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley, JP, these mean nothing to them. When I was starting my career, I would have loved to work in these organizations. Like you're going to go into these big organizations, work for them. They mean nothing to them. So, but Revolut, Monzo, Starling, these names mean things to them. And now Wahid as well. So that um, brand allegiance is in there. So there's an opportunity with, uh, I guess, uh, millennials and also people who are more conscious. We've also seen the rise of SDGs. And I said, yeah, sustainable development goals pushed by the UN people knowing more and they want to be better with their, with their money so all of this is kind of putting the melting pot and now we kind of need to see the emergence of more products coming out that actually meet the spirit of what we're trying to do which is actually more financial equality you know the worst thing is we've seen that it's actually got worse in the last few years totally interesting well before we dive into some of the major verticals of islamic fintech uh, that you see one thing that you sort of mentioned about the younger generation I mean something I happened to see in the corner of my eye I don't know a couple of years ago was that and I'm not surprised which is firstly that in the UK more people go to mosque at the weekend than go to church which isn't surprising because next to nobody goes to church but I think also something along the lines that in the UK more than 50% of young people don't remember what the word young means in this context don't go to mosque or, or, or don't go very often so there may be an extent to which modernity is seeping in all over the place. I mean, if you look at China, for example, it's monetary and economic policies. You couldn't really describe them as particularly Taoist or particularly Buddhist in the slightest. I mean, it's kind of Confucian and it's authoritarian. So it's a terrible generalisation across a vast globe. But presumably there are younger Muslims who are more religious and then there are younger Muslims who quite like their trainers and sneakers and the modern world. Is there any trend overall? I have to say, uh, when I look at it and I look at the numbers, religiosity, however you want to define it, is on the increase. But it's how you define it. It doesn't mean that perhaps uh, these individuals are more religious per se, but they're more vocal about what they want when it comes to their faith. So, whereas I say earlier generations perhaps wouldn't have vocalised or they would have put up, if there wasn't a halal meat option, they'd eat vegetarian or fish, the young guys, why do we have to compromise? It's easily available. We want halal meat and we're willing to pay for it. And this is the other thing, we're willing to pay for it. So I've definitely seen an increase in people who are more visibly Muslim. They're not willing to compromise. That The question referring back to Imam Ghazali is uh, whether they're more religious, I guess, spiritually. That's something else to be said. But definitely from a spending perspective, when you look at the Muslim pound, so to speak, it's increased. We've seen a number of brands uh, rising which are now mainstream and we've also seen mainstream brands speaking to a uh, Muslim audience either from modest wear or from food so what we're seeing is I guess that younger generation is is not as compromising so I they want to go and have the best food which definitely feeds into the whole um, Islamic fintech thing are there any 
I don't know what the phrase is, Islamic banks, because Monzo, I've got quite a nice interest rate, thank you very much, at the moment. Well, I say quite nice, it's 3.5%, but inflation's about 5,000%, so the real interest rate is, is massively negative. Maybe just give us an overview of the segments about the major things that are going on. So when you look at, I guess, for Islamic fintech, the, the way you can look at the various pillars of activity, you will have banking, banking as a, a, as a service, you will have insurtech, we'll have payment provision, but there's less activity in this, but it's a huge requirement, especially when the way money flows between the various uh, regions of the world. And, and then also investing. These are kind of your key areas. So when it comes to banking, now there's a huge challenge with banking because fundamentally, even if it's a fintech bank, right? The issue is that underlying banks that provide the services are conventional banks often. And so money is flowing into the conventional system, which is used for a lending. A bank, by definition, is something that can make up money out of thin air and base, base it on interest. But actually, it occurs to me, talking of, uh, talking of that, that uh, we had Glint on the show last year. Yeah. And Glint held your money, as you may know, uh, I've got an account with them myself, in a vault in Switzerland in the form of gold and don't pay interest. Now, of course, the value of your uh, money in your gold current account go, goes up and down with, a, with a, the price of gold. So I don't actually know whether they're Islamically compliant, but it would strike me as a very good example of a way to have a, a debit card that you stick in a hole in the wall and cash comes out, or you go and pay for a sort of, you know, packet of Smarties with, which actually isn't with a bank. Because if you, if, if you yourself have a Monzo card, well, you know that Monzo does a little bit of interest on the side. Whereas if you have a glint, you do have to worry about the fact that the gold price goes up and down like a yo-yo, because I think the whole thing's fixed. But I mean, apart from that... <laughs> We love Glint and we actually support them through oh, our there we go. VC. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good guess then. Good guess. And what you've described, Mike, is exactly how banking really should work. It's actually, it's not a bank in the traditional sense, but it's the ability to pay and transact with a real asset or commodity. So in the US, we're launching with Goldback, spending ability. We'll be working on it to have it released in the UK as well and in, in all the markets that we're in. But you're right, there is some... I guess, value risk from it going up or down in terms of uh, its value. But it's real. It can't be used for fractional lending. It can't be lent for interest. It's, it's, it's there. And what you have is what you have. Absolutely. Well, it's also a fascinating time with, I think the last time I saw about either 77 or 88 countries queuing to join the BRICS now that the American empire is collapsing. And um, there's all this talk about the BRICS flirting with some gold-backed stuff. And um, again, as Mario said, he had a great phrase which is um, uh, he doesn't know how they do it but uh, uh, all the central banks are absolutely backing up the truck and filling their trucks full of gold it was the highest year on record last year central banks buying of gold but the the darn price doesn't vote, move very much at all another thing for another, another day okay so look this is a fascinating topic i'm extremely aware that um, everything we've which touched on could be discussed uh, for weeks and weeks and indeed in some of these matters uh, scholars have been discussing them for over a thousand uh, yeah, so we have to try and sort of pull this together a little bit. I mean, just to give listeners a more practical, less highfalutin, less abstract, perhaps, understanding. Do you want to mention, I mean, you will mention Wahid in the dessert course in a minute, but um, do you want to mention some of the key uh, Islamic fintechs that you see uh, around the world that are, are really worth checking out for listeners, uh, of whom many will be Muslim, will want to go and have a look at themselves, along with uh, Glint, which uh, I'm pleased to find out is compliant. Yeah, absolutely. From financial services, this is the other thing. There's a number of fintechs that are out there that wouldn't necessarily be marketed as Sharia compliant, 
But in essence, because of the way they do their activity, they're Sharia compliant, Glint being one. So other great players in this space, we've got a company called FIDA, F-I-P-F-I-D-A, which uh, allows access for shared ownership in terms of property investing, crowd to live. We've got Kestrel, which is banking as a service, enabling Islamic banks to be able to provide their services digitally. They're very good. Um, we've got IFG, who are an information portal that allow through their fund, Curate Fund, some investing. Nesta, who do property financing. So uh, there's a number of different players like this. And we're actually trying to support the ecosystem through uh, one of our own, I guess, crowd investing startups itself, WahidX. So Wahid, which is our main investment platform, but then we also have WahidX to actually support startups and give them access to capital and expertise. So it's a great space. There's lots happening globally as well. We're seeing uh, in, in the Far East, there's Ethis, which is working in this space as well. Oh, excellent. Well, I think... Um... For those interested, and particularly maybe for the, uh, the younger generation of um, Muslims you're referring to, they don't have to work in, uh, uh, in the city in some sort of slightly compromised way. With the fintech coming along, then there's a chance to do a bunch of stuff that Al-Ghazali a thousand years ago may well have approved of, which is to actually be more in line with the pronouncements. And I think a couple of reflections, just wrapping up this section. Though. I mean, the first is yeah. that when you said, oh, Islamic finance was such as, as we know it now, has only been around for 35 years. I thought, gosh, that sounds a long time ago. And I was just doing a calculation in my head. Actually, that was exactly when I saw um, this chap come over <laughs> to the bank and talk <laughs> to my buddy, because uh, Clambos was actually pretty much at the, the front of it, being an old merchant bank and in this kind of um, Ian Fleming-y type way. We had, there was even um, people who'd worked in KB Tehran, in the Shah's day. And apparently one of the problems of working in KB Tehran is that you'd be given these rather lazy staff who didn't bother to come into the office much, had some really strange friends they met up with in really strange places, and you could never actually lean on them to actually do much work at all or whatever. I assume they had a, a, another part-time job, or perhaps a full-time uh, job, and it was a bit of a, mm-hmm. a cover. So that was a, a long time ago. And in terms of the implications for the broader uh, sphere of, uh, of ethics and uh, ethical finance, which we'd all, all like to see more of. I mean, I personally think that until we stop Nixon's insane 1971 experiment, the whole uh, West or the American empire in the broader sense will just keep collapsing as it is. I mean, going back to not having monks, uh, Henry VIII decided it'd be a good idea not to have monks in this country and abolished all the monasteries. Well, simply because he wanted more money to go and fight the French more than he had been before. So there's been this intimate connection between money and war, not that any part of the world has been uh, lacking in war over the last uh, thousand years. So I have to say, so there's much happening there. And I think that uh, I'm reminded also that of the late Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi in the UK, when all the wokeism was starting and people were being cancelled and all this kind of stuff, it was very simple for him to argue, ex cathedra is the wrong Latin phrase, but uh, you know what I mean, from a clear position of having a mast to which he lashed himself as a rabbi, this is <laughs> Judaism, and he was absolutely clear that uh, all this was terrible. And in the same way, in terms of ethics, it's, it is, has its complexities. I mean, in terms of how hard can it be, things are always more complex than they sound. But if, if one has a reference point, as you do in Islam, for what is ethical and what is desirable, then that's so much easier than the vast mass of uh, atheists. I'm not sure this atheism thing is going to survive for a, a thousand years, so we say, as um, most traditions uh, have done one way and another. We will get to spiritual revolution, uh, I feel, because, as I've quoted many times before, G.K. Chesterton, 
kind of following up Nietzsche, said that the problem is not that when man stops believing in God, he believes in nothing. It's that man will believe in anything. And if you look at some of the terrible, wokest stuff that's been indoctrinated into children today, you know, frankly, I, should, I would wish I could go back to the age of five, recant my <laughs> dislike yeah. of Christianity. I'd have rather gone... If, if, if I'd made the difference, I, then I'd, I'd still be going to church now because... Uh, things degenerate. Right, okay, so having a massive big picture again, before I put the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, particularly the subset of you working in Islamic fintech and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Well, Umid, as I mentioned, you've been an awesome guest. That You know roughly, certainly compared to me, everything about everything in this <laughs> sphere. And as always, just having a quick canter through the field for a short period of time can only give people the barest uh, flavours. But one of the things that you've been very scrupulous about is that you haven't actually got your flags out and waved them for Wahid at all. So maybe you'd kindly tell the listeners what Wahid sell to who, in which countries, which the listeners should be checking you out tomorrow, and what you need a Wahid to be even bigger and better next year than you are this year. Thank you, Mike. Absolute pleasure. So Wahid is available in the US, UK, Malaysia, and soon to be in the Middle East for a high net worth where available globally. Essentially, just download the app. It's open to everyone. If you want to invest your money and protect it from being used in an unscrupulous way invest in companies which have some level of good activity that they're doing that level of uh, the benchmark for good is is, uh, how we understand it that they're not doing anything which is prohibited they're not highly leveraged so it's a nice easy and efficient way of growing your money we invest in uh, listed companies we invest in gold and something called Sukuk, which is an asset-backed bond. Very straightforward. Download the app and you can start your investing journey today. Excellent. So you're on investment fintech? For now. Excellent. And in terms of being even bigger and better tomorrow, are there any countries out there that you'd like to hear from uh, important figures? I don't know. Indonesia's got a few people li- living there. If uh, one of my Indonesian <laughs> listeners is listening and would like uh, to see something that you're doing over there, um, no doubt you might be able to return his call. Yeah, I mean, look, we have licenses in an additional nine jurisdictions around the world. So Nigeria, South Africa, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, India. These are all waiting for us. And honestly, we we can't keep up with the demand. Genuinely, we can't keep up with the demand. But we want to do things in a uh, in in a steady, managed way to be able to ensure that. I don't know. It's it's a, it's a regulatory business that we're in. We're taking care of people's money. We, you know, we can't be frivolous with it. So yeah, we're trying to be measured, make sure we go deep in the regions that we're in, and then we're going to grow. So there'll, there'll be a tipping point, and hopefully people get on on board before that because then they'll see the huge growth. Excellent. Well, I like the idea myself of investing in these kind of investment products because uh, I presume you don't have to be a Muslim to invest in your in of your funds. Not. It's just that you know there is a, an ancient standard of reference which doesn't blow with the wind depending on the latest fashion on you know liberal american campuses and uh, the terrible things that are spread around the world and i for my sins by tracker funds as a low cost and an easy way of doing it but if there were tracker funds which were uh, i didn't mind the 
the alcohol actually I needed by the weekend <laughs> in, in, in my sinful condition. But I certainly would be very happy not to invest in, in guns or actually these days a big farmer, but that's another story entirely. So anyway, thank you very much for that, Uma. I found it very fascinating. I'm sure the listeners did. And I wish you and Wahid every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.